You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients. Oh my. I'm Pyle Nanavetti. And I'm Joe Records. And today we're talking with two of our colleagues, Todd Rosenberg and Sam Krause, about the case of Rutledge versus PCMA, the Pharmaceutical Care Management Association. This case has been granted certiorari by the U.S. Supreme Court. It's been briefed by the parties and is pushed to next term. And it gives us really a good opportunity to talk about two of our favorite things, ERISA and PBMs. Specifically at issue in Rutledge is whether ERISA preempts state regulation of PBMs. The parties here are the Attorney General of Arkansas, whose PBM law is at issue, and the trade association that represents PBMs, PCMA. The 2015 Arkansas PBM law places restrictions on how low PBM's reimbursement rates to pharmacies can go. And the district court held in 2017, and the Eighth Circuit affirmed in 2018, that the Arkansas law is preempted by ERISA and thus cannot apply to benefits paid under ERISA plans. The state petitioned the Supreme Court, which granted cert in January, and rescheduled oral arguments to the fall term. Kyle, thanks for the background, and Todd and Sam, thank you so much for being with us today. This episode feels a little bit like a sequel. We've discussed in an episode released in November that many states have enacted laws restricting PBMs in a number of ways, including with respect to pricing. And then in another episode, which we released last September, we talked about ERISA and how it broadly preempts state insurance laws, subject, of course, to a number of important caveats that we'll get into today. What we're really digging into today is the collision of these two issues, state regulation of PBMs and ERISA preemption of state law. Yep. And uh, before we get into the arguments and the implications of the Rutledge case, let's start with a quick refresher on ERISA preemption. The statute effectively says that ERISA has fairly broad preemptive powers and that ERISA shall supersede any and all state laws insofar as they may relate to any employee benefit plan. It follows up with a savings clause that basically carves out state insurance laws from preemption, any law of any state which regulates insurance, banking, or securities. That is then followed up with ERISA's Deamer Clause, which states that no employee benefit plan covered by ERISA shall be deemed to be an insurance company or other insurer for purposes of any law or of any state purporting to regulate insurance companies or insurance contracts. So what that effectively does is it provides that if you are a employee welfare plan, such as a health insurance plan, and you are self-insured, state insurance laws that govern insured products and insurers are preempted by ERISA for these purposes in sort of broad sense. Thanks, Sam. So that gets us to the crucial issue here. We've got a broad federal law preempting state law, but it's really the states that have taken action in the broad effort to regulate PBMs. And Todd, we talked about this at some length, as I said before, on a previous episode, but can you give us just a quick refresher on what the landscape looks like, particularly what the Arkansas law looks like in terms of regulation of PBMs? Sure. I think when you look at state regulation of PBMs, you traditionally would think about it in terms of regulations applicable to Medicaid plans because they are, in many ways, state creatures. So traditionally, more of the state regulations of PBMs and pharmacy benefits arose in the context of Medicaid. What's been happening over the recent years 
largely at the initiative of community pharmacies and, and other groups with interests in the you know, reimbursement of pharmacies, has been an effort to more broadly regulate PBMs, both as to Medicaid and also as to commercial plans. Uh, there have been a number of areas where these regulations have enacted you know, requirements on the reimbursement of pharmacies or on the relationships between PBMs and pharmacies. These include things like banning gag clauses where pharmacies wouldn't be able to tell the patient that perhaps they might pay less if they were paying out of pocket than using their insurance benefits. State requirements that PBMs obtain licenses in order to operate in the states, just like they require insurers to obtain licenses. Other requirements on limitations of cost sharing, and also in some states, more and more requiring what's called pass-through pricing, where the price that the PBM bills to the health plan is the same price that it pays the pharmacy. What's really at issue in the Rutledge case are laws governing MAC list reimbursement or other reimbursement for drugs, because the Arkansas statute says that the minimum reimbursement to the pharmacy has to be the pharmacy's invoiced cost for the particular drug. And so unlike the normal situation where the PBM establishes the price and pays the pharmacy the price, and the pharmacy can basically either accept that price and be in the PBM's pharmacy network or reject that price and decide not to cover the members that are covered by or through that PBM. Here, the law is establishing the price that the PBM has to reimburse the pharmacy. So the issue it really here is whether that restriction under the law is appropriate, good policy, consistent with ERISA or not. So it seems like a pretty clear and straightforward argument to say that the PBM reimbursement to the pharmacy should at least cover the pharmacy's costs. But what would the PBM industry say to support its argument that this particular restriction is not consistent with ERISA? You know, what the PBM industry would say is that the invoiced price to the pharmacy may not actually reflect the actual amount that the pharmacy is paying to the wholesaler or manufacturer of the drug. And so there may be situations where that price is inflated on the invoice and shouldn't represent the price that's paid to the pharmacy for that drug. They'd also argue that it's difficult to look at reimbursement individually in the particular circumstance because that's a bit inconsistent with how pharmacy benefits are structured between plans and their members and PBMs when they're acting as a third-party administrator for the plan. So, which is more of a globally applicable concept, right, where employers have employees across different jurisdictions and need to have a plan and a policy with benefits coverages that are consistent and work to achieve the right economics for the members across the board. And are these practical arguments woven into their ERISA-based arguments as well? Yeah, I think to a large degree it is, because the Supreme Court has said in a number of decisions, Gobiel among them, that ERISA preemption is probably the most broad preemption in federal law. And one of the main reasons for that is that you have 
companies that are doing business over many states. And yet one of the ideas behind ERISA preemption was this concept that we want to make it easier to administer these over large areas. One of the other places here that the Arkansas law causes problems for ERISA plans potentially is the claims procedures that this law puts in place. They would actually set up an entirely different claims procedure than already exists under ERISA. So it would cause ERISA plans in that sense to have a separate claims procedure, a plan, for example, that was 50 states let's say a large retailer, for example, who had operations in 50 states. They would have to have a claims procedure for the plan. Then they would have to have a separate claims procedure for pharmacy benefit manager in the state of Arkansas. And that's one of the problems that ERISA was set up to avoid. In the state of Arkansas and conceivably in all other jurisdictions, right? Correct. So you'd have one in the state of Arkansas, one that applies to everybody else, but other states are moving this direction too. So you could end up with you know, different procedures in five, six different states, plus the plan's main procedure that, that's supposed to apply everywhere. Are other states enacting similar laws to the one in Arkansas? I think we're definitely seeing a lot of interest in doing so, whether it's come to be codified or not. I think there were 31 states who supported Arkansas in the Rutledge case. So we are definitely seeing a move in that direction. I think that's clearly a trend that we would see if the Supreme Court sides with the state of Arkansas. Interestingly, a few years ago back in, I believe it was 2014, the Department of Labor put together an advisory panel to look at the issue of PBM pricing and things like that. And what they came to was, simply put, their answer was, we think there's a problem. We think that something should be done about PBM pricing models. We don't know what it is yet. More study is required. And so that did sort of throw a lot of mud into these waters about who should be doing this and when they should be doing it. Because at this point, you know, you see a, this advisory panel effectively saying, yeah, there's something should be done here. We don't know what it is, but something needs to be done. And I think and I, that may have emboldened some of the states to step in and say, look, if you guys aren't going to do it, we're going to do it for you. We've seen a number of amicus briefs filed in this case, and we're seeing we're kind of seeing some lines form. Uh, I think, Todd, you mentioned that there are 31 states that have filed briefs with the court. And we've also seen the trade associations, America's Health Insurance Plans, as well as the PBM trade associations have filed briefs here. This is, on the one hand, it's a relatively straightforward question of a risk preemption. But on the other, there are some potential downstream consequences for the players at issue. Could you touch a little bit on what we've seen in the positions that have taken shape in the amicus briefs? The amicus briefs, especially on the side of the PBMs, because they're coming from trade associations, they've been fairly consistent. On the other side, you have a number of different arguments that are being made. I'm going to try and keep it short because there's so many different ones. But the amicus briefs, for example, from the state of California, 
they tend to argue more of the state's compelling reasons for entering the space, that there is a problem, that the problem needs to be fixed, that the federal government has not fixed the problem, and that the states do have a compelling interest in stepping in here. Another one, for example, is done by the Arkansas Pharmacists Association, and that tends to be the opposite end. If you think of the state's compelling interest as being the macro argument, the micro argument tends to come from the pharmacist saying, we're largely being pushed into a situation where we have to accept what the PBMs give us or we're dead in the water because we can't compete unless we're a network. So that's sort of the macro and micro arguments, and they all fit into those two categories. Either there's a problem that needs to be fixed and the state needs to fix it, or on the other side, there is real damage being done to consumer choice and there's oligopolies being created because of the PBMs, the larger pharmacies' abilities to meet the PBMs' requirements that are pricing smaller pharmacies out of the market. So it sounds like the states have focused on these practical reasons why they should be able to regulate PBMs. And a lot of that is connected to or related to the studies that we talked about earlier, saying that something needs to be done about PBMs, but at the federal level, they're not exactly sure what yet. So in addition to those practical arguments, what is the state of Arkansas's ERISA argument? to support that this law is not preempted? The main arguments that Arkansas makes is is that the Court of Appeals applied Gobeil incorrectly, right? The Gobeil standard is, is that ERISA preempts only state laws that have either an impermissible reference to ERISA plans, i.e. where a state seeks to single out ERISA plans for regulation, or an impermissible connection with ERISA plans, for example, where a state seeks to regulate in a way that would undermine ERISA's scheme of nationally uniform plan administration. So I can't say I'm entirely convinced by these arguments or, or find them particularly compelling. However, they will say, for example, that the Arkansas law does not specifically call out ERISA plans, does not specifically mention them by name. But so their argument seems to be that it has to specifically mention ERISA plans by name or else that's not referenced to. The other argument is that effectively that this is rate regulation. This is not regulation of the terms of the plan. And that argument just as a factual matter doesn't make sense to me. I understand what they're saying is is that we're trying to regulate the end user. In other words, we're trying to regulate what the pharmacy pays, but that does have a direct effect on how the plan is administered. Todd, do you want to give us a quick summary of what the federal government has argued? So the Solicitor General stepped in relatively late, I believe, in this case and made the argument that there's a distinction within ERESA as to whether the party that's being regulated is the plan itself, the ERISA plan, or whether it is a third-party administrator acting on behalf of the ERISA plan. And PCMA pushes back at this, making the point that PBMs really achieve economies of scale and reduce the cost of providing 
pharmacy benefits for members by having well-developed claims processing, information technology systems, by negotiating with pharmacies on mass rather than each plan having to do so separately for itself and other economies of scale that get created. And so they make the point that it's pretty common to have group arrangements like this and also pretty common for parties to outsource certain job functions or functions of their businesses to third parties who can perform them more efficiently so that it would not make sense for the court to distinguish for ERISA purposes between what's being done by a plan itself and what's being done by a PBM on behalf of a plan. It's a strange argument to make that ERISA wouldn't apply to the TPM doing the service for the plan effectively. Because as Todd rightly points out, PBMs are like any other service provider to a plan. You have someone who is a self-insured plan. They have sought expert help in handling some process of the plan itself. So what they're saying is, is that if you do it yourself, ERISA applies, but if you hire someone to help you do this, and that effectively, if they are a fiduciary, then they're acting as a fiduciary to a plan, and ERISA should apply. If a PBM is not a fiduciary, they are just a third-party administrator who is simply mechanically applying the terms of the plan, by saying ERISA doesn't apply to them, you would give them a, a chance to do things that the plan itself couldn't do for itself as far as violation of ERISA. And then on the other hand, if they are a fiduciary, then does that mean that they're saying because they're a third party, they shouldn't be held to the same ERISA fiduciary standards? Which I think sets up well my next question about what's the potential fallout if the U.S. Supreme Court, and this isn't a decision that's going to come imminently, as Pyle mentioned, this has been delayed until next term, but what are the potential outcomes here, the downstream consequences, if the Supreme Court rules one way or the other? If the state laws are preempted, are we going to see federal regulation? If so, what does that look like? Is that even possible? If the state laws are allowed to apply to ERISA, then what does that look like for plan administration? I think we're heading towards federal regulation anyway. Getting people interested in the minutiae of these situations, of PBMs and how they're paid and what your pharmacy gets and what you're getting, things like that, it's just difficult to get anybody interested in. So this particular administration has at least titularly staked out the area of greater transparency, and I think it can be done through that type of process, through a transparency process. And the fact that there has been some moves on the transparency front from the joint regulations from IRS, HHS, CMS, and Department of Labor, for example. And Todd, if we're heading toward federal regulation of PBMs, what does that look like? a great question. I think there would be any number of different answers. If you asked five different economists, you'd probably get 10 answers on that just because of the number of players in the drug supply chain, where if you pull on one lever, you might push on another, right? The, one of, there were a lot of thought and attention given last year to potentially banning drug rebates from pharmacy manufacturers and ultimately and that didn't surface potentially largely because it could have had an impact on driving up premiums that members would pay. And that would have had 
negative political consequences and potentially negative economic consequences. So somehow there's going to have to be a bringing together by a leadership with credibility to do so of drug manufacturers, of wholesalers, of pharmacies, of PBMs, and of plans to try to figure out how to right-size the system so that drug prices being paid in this country are not excessive of what the drug prices are being paid in foreign countries in the way they are today. So just to wrap up here, do either of you have any thoughts about how states might continue to try to attempt to regulate, even if the Supreme Court affirms the Eighth Circuit opinion? Could states, for example, try to regulate in a way that doesn't introduce a new appeals process, and that way it wouldn't fall into a preempted form of regulation of PBMs. Do you all have any thoughts about that? One of the things that states can do is go after insured products first, limit their actions to insured products, because in that sense, they don't get to the plan, they get to the insurer. So the plan would be in a position where for their purposes, it's all seamless. So they go out and they buy an insured product. The state doesn't go to the plan and say, we don't like what you've bought. The state goes to the insurer and says, I don't care what the plan says. You're not allowed to sell this in the state, period, end of discussion. So I think that would be more likely to be successful because it brings up not only the fact that they are going after what is clearly within their purview, which is insured products offered within their state, but they're also putting pressure where their pressure will be the most effective, which is on entities that they already regulate. So a PBM will be less likely to fight something like that because they may have other issues in front of the state licensing authorities or the state regulatory authorities that are more important to their business than this particular fight. I was going to make a similar point to Sam's that I think we're going to see more attempts to require that PBMs be licensed in order to act in the state as one form of the state being able to exact political pressure on the PBMs. I think with COVID-19 and the economic downturn, potentially increasing the ranks of people covered by Medicaid we may see greater state imposition of limitations on how PBMs function in the Medicaid space. And that could be another way where maybe even issues unrelated to Medicaid that deal with PBMs could be addressed by pressure exerted in the context of Medicaid being used to potentially drive behaviors in other areas. All right. Well, thank you both for your insights today. We are keeping track of your frequent flyer miles. We look forward to having you both on the podcast again in the future. Thank you. Great. Thanks much. My pleasure. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast. Mm-hmm.